This episode is brought to you by SoftLayer, an IBM company. If you're an entrepreneur, SoftLayer has created an incredible program just for you. It's called Catalyst. Catalyst offers amazing perks to you and your company, including credits to use their servers, mentorship, connection, and marketing support. To find out more, visit softlayer.com slash catalyst. Again, that's softlayer.com slash catalyst to find out more about this amazing program. This week, we looked back at the year and discussed our favorite moments of Inside Outside in 2015. We also caught up with Phil Terry, author of Customers Included, a guide on how to connect better with your audience and create great customer experiences. This interview is packed with amazing experiences and stories from Phil's many years in working with companies like Apple and Facebook. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name is Matt Boyd. And I'm Brian Ardinger. And this week, we're going to be giving a little bit of a rundown on this year because it's been a fantastic year. It's the holiday season, so we always just want to do a little bit of a retrospective on, uh, you know, kind of what's happened this year. What do you what do you think, Brian? What, what's like kind of the standout moment for you or one or two standout moments? Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, I want to keep this episode kind of short and sweet so people can get back to their holiday feasting and Absolutely. such. Absolutely. But um, yes, obviously, when we launched the podcast about 36 weeks ago, and um, you know, I'm just really thankful for all the people that have kind of obviously listeners as well as the guests that we've had. It's been a phenomenal year to talk to some interesting people and, and, uh, and share that knowledge. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember just day one thinking about, uh, you know, just how hard it was to put out that first episode then the second episode. And it's really kind of hard to believe that we're 36, what are we? 36, 37, 37 episodes in. Yeah. It's kind of mind, mind boggling. <laughs> Yeah, and especially the types of guests that we've been able to get in, you know, everything from oh you know, my gosh. Paul Singh, Brad Feld, Diana Kander, Jonathan Triest. I mean, thank you all for uh, for being a part of this. Absolutely. So so going back into the episodes, what's some of the um, the top things that you've kind of taken away from, from some of the guests? And I know it's impossible to pick yeah. our favorite guests because they're all incredible uh, in their own right. They all have their own kind of personal expertise on a specific topic that we're talking about. But what do you, what, what are some of the takeaways uh, and maybe I can start us off. Sure. Um, I think uh, I think some of the some of the insight that Shane Mack brought to us with when to, first of all that article or that that uh, that discussion was radical. I think that discussion changed a lot of minds when it comes to fundraising. Um, but some of the deep insights that he brought when it comes to to actually raising raising funds and uh, and the relationship possibly between the Midwest and Silicon Valley and how how to navigate that potentially. I think that's some of the the most interesting stuff that that I've walked away with. I think that everybody, when that episode happened and when, and I even remember standing there listening to him kind of say this stuff, it would just, every single thing that he was saying just kind of blew my mind. What do you think? <laughs> I agree. That was one of the best ones. I think, you know, we had the chance of grabbing him when he got off the stage at Big Omaha. And I think he was still a little uh, excited from getting on, on stage yeah. there. <laughs> so it was, an, it was yeah. a good way to, to do an interview. I, you know, I, I personally liked a lot of the kind of the combination of guests that we had. So obviously we had some pretty big names and, and folks from around the country and around the world that were uh, involved in startups outside of the, the Valley. But um, you know, some of the episodes I look back on are, are some of our, our local kind of guests, you know, absolutely John words and kind of telling that huddle story. Um, oh my gosh. You know, I think obviously that's a big story for the year in general with them raising 72 and a half million dollars and, and kind of 
putting their stake, uh, you know, in the ecosystem around here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people like David Chait, uh, again, all these local folks that kind of talked a little bit about what it's really like to build in a smaller community. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the, actually our second episode ever was Blake and Adi from Open Doors. Yeah. And I, I think that those guys really opened up the idea to me about how a founding team can work. And I think that, you know, that's a, a thing that people gloss over, but, it, but a lot of times like you think about, you know, company culture, you think about team dynamic, but how do the founders interact with each other? Mm-hmm. And I think that those guys really brought home the idea that you celebrate. So first of all, you have to be very, very self-aware, uh, but you also have to be uh, really cognizant of the other person's strengths and celebrate those strengths. Find things that the person that, that your other co-founder is really, really strong at and celebrate those things. Um, and I think that those guys really brought that point home to me. And I think the other thing I like about uh, this last year is we, we had a chance to talk to a lot of people who are building in communities outside the Valley. So whether it was like Andy White talking about the Vegas tech fund and, and what happened there, or Tyler Crowley talking about, you know, basically a whole new ecosystem built in Sweden and how that's you know, really dominating the, the European scene and, and getting closer and closer to being on par to, you know, the things that you see here in the U S um, and to kind of get the, on the ground um, feedback of what's really working in these particular ecosystems is pretty, pretty interesting to, for me because as a community builder in that, uh, it's, I think it's important to understand what's working, what's not working in other ecosystems. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always, it really comes we talk about this a lot, but I think self-awareness is a big thing. And I think the only way that you can be really self-aware is to know what other people are kind of doing. And I think that it's important for any startup ecosystem to be, to, to truly understand what's happening around other ecosystems, because a lot of things change a lot of, you know, especially in tech, I mean, things are changing constantly. So I think that, you know, it's really good to bring people, you know, from the outside in to really kind of get, and I guess that's the whole premise of our, of our podcast here. And maybe it never really came full circle until just now for me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that if we look back on our, on the guests that have, that have come into the show, I think that, you know, you really get a, a great perspective of what's happening across the country uh, when it comes to startup ecosystems. And then not only that, but, you know, in the ecosystem themselves, but like from an investor perspective. So, you know, we've had guests like, you know, Jonathan Triest or Rafael uh, Corrales or, or um, you know, Nick Moran from the Full Ratchet, you know, and that, those guys sharing their their kind of insights on what it takes for founders and what they look for, um, I think was really eye-opening for me in a number of different ways. So if there was one thing this holiday season that you could take away, I know everybody's experiencing, you know, their holiday. What what would be that one thing that you could take away? I think for me, you know, I look back over the last couple of years of of what's um, been built in the ecosystem around here and and what's been built around the nation. And I think that's the key is like, think people need to keep building, Um, you know, don't rest on the laurels of of what's gone in the past and, and really take stock on what you've done over the last year. And then make 2016 even better by continuing to, to execute and, and move things forward. Yeah. And for me, I think it's, um, and I don't think this has really changed since I, since I, we started this podcast. Uh, I, th- I think if anything, it's really kind of solidified, you know, my thinking. But I think that, you know, when it comes to starting, it, whether you're thinking about starting or whether you're working at a startup right now or you're starting a company, I think it's just, uh, it, it comes down to being bold. I think it's take, take yep. calculated risks, make sure that the risks that you're taking are well thought out. Uh, well studied, uh, and then just go for it. I, I think that's the that's the key when it comes to any startup. If you don't go for it, then you're not gonna you're not gonna achieve what you want to achieve. Yep. Don't be afraid to to fall on your face a couple times and and get back up and and try it again. Happy holidays. <laughs> we do a lot of interviews on this show, but none that are more interesting and packed with amazing customer focused advice 
in this session with Phil Terry, author of Customers Included. Uh, I think like most people, I fell into it by accident. Um, I was, um, you know, I was using the internet uh, for a couple of years before the web came out in the uh, in the early 1990s. And I was doing actually technology strategy and training work at Moody's Investor Service uh, in New York, uh, a job I never thought I would ever have. I was a community organizer. Um, I never thought I would work in the corporate world. Um, but as a community organizer, I was trained to think about the environment, the context that create to make it possible for people to uh, do new kinds of things together. And uh, when I entered the corporate world, um, I discovered that there was uh, too little attention being paid to what eventually uh, I came to know as customer experience and usability. So um, when thinking about the, um, the tools and the software packages, and we went, you know, this is back in the days when, you know, every, the, the, the exciting questions um, <laughs> had to do with um, applications like Lotus Notes. And, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, w- w- was IBM going to continue to develop its, um, its OS, uh, which, which, which many geeks liked better than the Windows operating system, but w- wasn't getting much traction. Um, and, of course, Apple was around, but, but not doing a whole lot. Nearly in that dead. period. Yeah, nearly dead, in fact. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I think I think my my early experience and I, I ended up going to business school was on the uh, briefly on the startup team of the first company that uh, Amazon eventually bought a company called Planet All, which was um, most people don't remember Planet All, but it was an early version of what became Facebook. Um, and, uh, although I think we had no idea. <laughs> what we could have become. Um, and my, my first job there was in business development. Uh, and I was going around to companies like Excite and trying to negotiate deals like uh, for traffic um, and, uh, and, and to help us grow our business and to you know, put us on the homepage and that kind of thing. And what I very quickly learned is that if we, um, we could spend a ton of money and time on sending traffic to our site, but if the experience wasn't what it needed to be, then that was a complete and total waste of time. So I ended up shifting my role there from business development into customer experience and customer service and trying to address, you know, the, uh, and, and starting to run what I would eventually call listening labs. Um, I ended up uh, doing a couple of things after that and then... In, um, in 1999, um, my partner, Mark Hurst, and I uh, decided to work together to build a company called Creative Good. Now, I, I sold Creative Good to Mark a couple years ago to focus on, on the councils. And I'll just note that uh, about 15 years ago, a little less than that, I started the, these customer experience councils with Marissa Meyer, who was then unknown, and a couple of other folks from Amazon and Travelocity and others. And the idea was, hey... Um, you know, consult, consulting is good. You know, we can help individual companies, and we did great work with companies from Apple to Facebook to a bunch of others. But wouldn't it be powerful if we got the actual leaders of those companies together in private forums to really ask for and give each other help in, build, in building their businesses and creating uh, uh, customer inclusive organizations. Um, so I, I fell in love with that business. And so a couple of years ago, I, I ended up splitting Creative Good into two, um, selling the consulting business to Mark and, and buying the council's business from him. Uh, we sort of swapped and we each became full owners of the two respective businesses that we had owned together. 
Um, and that's what I'm now doing full time as well as on the road speaking about the book we published, Customers Included, um, which details a lot of the stories and lessons that, uh, that we learned over 15 years. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the book. Obviously, we want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty simple thesis. You know, businesses thrive when they listen to their customer. <laughs> Why do so many companies not get this right? So it's a great question, right? So when I give my talks, I always begin with um, acknowledging that um, we're not the first people to say that the customer is important. Uh, in fact, if you do a Google Ngram search, uh, you know, the Ngram viewer is a Google tool that allows you to search uh, the literature, books and articles and so on for the occurrence of a word or phrase. So if you do a search for customer experience, you learn that from like 1820 to 1954, there's absolutely no <laughs> reference to the phrase. And that's, you know, that's about right. That's how the first and second industrial revolutions kind of went, right? Well, you know, what? what? There, there, there's a customer. Um, but in, in 1954, Peter Drucker wrote The Practice of Management, his first book. And in that book, he said the fundamental purpose of a company is to create a, a customer and to serve a customer. And uh, those were fighting words in 1954. Uh, it was a revolutionary concept. Uh, and if you follow along, you see he unfortunately didn't have as much an impact as he should have. The culture wasn't quite ready. It, it kind of bumps along. Uh, but in the early 90s, after the introduction of the web, the prevalence of the term customer experience rockets up. You know, So by the time we published Customers Included in 2013, there had literally been thousands of books and articles written on the topic of customers, customer experience, and so forth. So why, why, did, why, why another book? Why do we write that? Well, because after, despite the fact now that everyone sort of knows the customer is important, um, still most companies create mediocre products, services, and experiences. And that was your question, why, right? Yep. Um, and in the book, we, wa we walk through answers to that question, right? So the, the, the interestingly, so the book came out October, early October, October 1st, 2013. And the first story... Uh, Brian, that we tell in the book is about a government project that's politically contentious, expensive, controversial, and failed upon launch. And uh, we had the <laughs> we had the dubious distinction of actually publishing the book the very same day that the first version of the Obamacare website <laughs> launched. <laughs> and in all my early talks, everyone thought I was talking about the Obamacare size. No, no, that was that happened after we published the book on the same day. Uh, no, we we were talking about actually the, the Border Patrol project. So which which suddenly unfortunately has new currency. But um, for ten years. First, Congress tried to figure out how to build a physical fence along the border of Mexico. This is not a new idea, by the way, that Trump is now proposing in the right. Republican primary. And Congress finally, and if you ask any engineer, 2,000-mile fence is ridiculous, hard, hard if not impossible to build, and certainly impossible to maintain. It took Congress about 10 years to figure that out. And then Boeing raised their hand and said, oh, hire us. We'll build an electronic fence. Uh, you know, we'll use that Internet technology. <laughs> it'll be a little bit like Skynet. <laughs> and, and it'll be fabulous. And a couple of billion dollars later, um, the thing was launched and it failed. And we start with this story. Um, because it exemplifies uh, the first reason that most companies still today create products, services, and experiences that suck. And uh, they, they fired the Homeland Security Administrator who had been in charge of this project, and they brought a new guy in. 
And the poor guy, his first job was to go on PBS and explain why uh, they had just wasted several billion dollars of taxpayer money on this thing for the Border Patrol that didn't work. And the interviewer uh, at PBS says, you know, you mean to tell me that you built a multi-billion dollar project and you never for the Border Patrol and you never thought to ask or figure out what the Border Patrol agents might need or want? That seems like a big mistake. And uh, the guy, the new guy says, yeah, it's a huge mistake. And remarkably, Brian, despite the fact that thousands of books have been written, articles, you know, and people certainly profess, and I believe them, to think this is important, many companies still today actually do absolutely nothing at all um, to understand their customer. And I see this uh, true, almost even more true sometimes in the startup world. Um, And so, you know, the, the, the challenge with startups is that you're you're running fast, um, and so look. Um, theoretically, the lean methodology starts with an understanding of the customer, but in practice, that step is skipped in most cases, and people jump into iterating. Now, the thing is, is that there are many more ways to build a bridge that will fall down than to build a bridge that will stand up. And so if you don't iterate intelligently, if you don't start with some real understanding of your customer and the unmet need and the problem you're trying to solve, you can literally iterate endlessly and never get any closer to a product or service that would work for a customer. Um, And so, you know, my message to startups, which I know is a lot of who your audience is, is you've you've got to carve out a little bit of time. Now, people will say, well, but we're doing something entirely new, so... We can't talk to any customers. I say, well, listen, the point is not to ask them what they want, because especially in innovative situations, people have no idea. One one of the real challenges of customer experience work is um, the fact that we human beings, our species, while we have this great tool called language, we actually don't seem to be able to use that tool in any meaningful way to describe what we ourselves might want. Mm-hmm. We often don't know. We'll say words, but it doesn't necessarily mean it maps to what really matters. So when executives or startup founders hear this or come to understand it, they, I think, tend to say, well, screw it. I'll just do something that I like. Um, And, you know, if a thousand startups do that, you know, five of them will get lucky and succeed. Right. So from the vantage point of the overall ecosystem, it's not necessarily terrible. You know, Darwinian evolution will work its magic and some, you know, small number of companies will accidentally hit on something that's adaptive to the current situation and customer needs. But often I'm talking to the founders themselves and trying to help them understand how to raise the odds that they will be successful. And the answer to that is uh, you've got to spend some time with customers, not asking them what they want, but watching what they're doing and not doing. And yes, if you're doing something, if you're creating the iPhone and it's 2006, um, you're not going to be watching them using a smartphone because that doesn't exist yet. But you can watch them using, and which is what Steve Jobs did, the actual phone, you know, the flip phone, the candy bar phone, whatever, the Nokia phone they were using at the time. And you can start to ferret out unmet needs and key pain points and, and then uh, design around that. 
Um, and so that, you know, that's my message to, to startups is that you've, you don't run so fast that you skip over spending some time with your potential customers. Um, it will hurt you in the long run. Uh, now, so- you could get lucky, but, um, uh, but if you want to get more than lucky, you got to do that. Yeah, I agree, right, Brian. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, a lot of times when we're working with accelerator companies, you know, one of the things we talk about is, is you've got to slow down to speed up. And yeah. Getting the, that, font, that, that foundational stuff yeah. under your belt is so much more important. Um, I, I love the book because you talk a lot about, obviously, tons of business examples of yeah. how, um, how this works. But you also, like you mentioned, bring out the fact that a lot of this can be uh, applied in, in a variety of settings. And you, you talk uh, in there about Brooklyn's Prospect Park <laughs> and, and the, uh, the techniques that were used to kind of not change a business per se, but uh, how people actually use a, a, public, a park. public facility. Yeah. Do you know that is that's so funny that you bring up the park? So, you know, I joined the board of the park and, and ended up, we ended up doing some pro bono work and, and, and loved it. I have to admit that um, I was concerned when writing the book that if we included that case study that that people would find it less relevant because it wasn't a business study. It is the favorite. Every single person brings that up to me like that was my favorite story. This is a great example. Well, I didn't I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that was what the readers were really going to like. Um yeah, it was a great story. You want me to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, because yeah. it gives different context of, like, how do you actually do this stuff? And, yeah. and then I think it gives a different uh, perspective for the, for the uh, business person. So first of all, I have to say that Tupper Thomas, who was then the leader of the park, the president of the Prospect Park Alliance and also uh, the president of uh, the New York City Parks Department Prospect Park Section, uh, was absolutely fundamental to this, um, and it this is this is a pattern and a theme. Um, you know, if if the CEO or president really um, gets behind the idea of being customer inclusive, it changes it changes everything. Now, if, if someone's listening to this and they're the VP of product somewhere <laughs> and their C, their founder doesn't quite get behind it, yes, there are things you can do, but. Um, but if you really want to change the world, it, it, it matters. I, it just, I wish the answer were that, um, you know, you could do that with, without senior leadership support, but it just, it matters. So she, you know, Tupper um, came to the park uh, in 1979 um, when, um, you know, New York City was in pretty bad shape. And the park itself was um, used um, primarily by drug dealers um, and not by the communities that lived around the park. It was not a safe place to be. And um, so I just want to give a lot of credit to her. And I want to point something out that I thought she did that was really important. And then I can talk about what we ended up doing, you know, decades later. So. Um, the first thing she did was walk around the park and try to figure out who who is using this park. <laughs> I, the, the non who are the non criminals that are coming <laughs> to the park today, and what's going on with them? And she discovered pretty quickly that the most passionate and loyal group of users for the park were um, the folks who had dogs, right, and brought their dogs into the park. And they were really frustrated because they could never let their dogs off the leash. New York had leash laws that said you could never, you know, when you're in our parks, you could never let your dog off the leash. And, of course, what do you do when you get into the park? The dog wants to jump around and, you know, it's it's pretty frustrating. So Topper decided, you know what, let, let me do this. 
let me let me change the experience for this really important group of users. And she, she you know, she the young, you know, Minnesotan, by the way, she, she was this young, fresh faced Minnesotan who moved to New York and, and got this job. Um, and and she she figured out how to work the levers of City Hall and, and, and the, you know, the, the the sort of higher levels of the parks uh, department. And if you, she got the law changed and, you know, she got, she made it possible for um, folks with dogs to let their um, dogs off the leash for one hour a day. And then I think, I think eventually two hours a day, like one in the morning, one in the evening. They were just over the moon with her. They just mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. And with the enthusiasm of those early adopters, if you will, she, um, she uh, formed the Prospect Park Alliance, the nonprofit uh, partner to, to help uh, raise money to invest in and rehabilitate the park. And, and that's what she did. And she ended up, over the next 25 years, totally transforming the park. You know, so the park went from, I think, a million visitors a year in the late 70s to 8 million by the mid-2000s. You know, it's just an you know, eight-fold increase. Um, she renovated the interior of the park, rebuilt the waterfall, the ravine, these natural elements that Olmsted had designed, the great park designer, Fox and Olmsted, back in the mid-19th century. Um, and, I, I mean, it is, it is really one of the great parks <clears throat> of the whole country. But people weren't using it, and uh, she went step by step. She spent a, a tremendous amount of time in the park. When I first interviewed her, or interviewed with her to join the board, so I met her in her office in the park in whatever year this was, I forget now, t- 2005 or six, something like that. I'm sitting with her, and it's like 6 o'clock in the evening. The phone's ringing, and her staff has gone home. And so she says, excuse me, like in the middle of interview, she picks it up, you know, Prospect Park, and it's some random person calling in, you know, hey, um, I'm trying to figure out how to do this or does, does the park offer that? And she spends like a good 10 minutes basically being a customer service rep with this person, random person. And I loved that. It's like, okay, this is, a, this is someone I want to work with. Like, she is not looking down her nose at the idea of serving the public. In fact, if anything, she, uh, she always fundamentally saw that as her job. Now, I said to her, I said, Tupper, I'd love to join the board. I do have one request. I'd be honored. But I have a, I have a funny request to make, which is um, I would like to uh, get your support to run a pro bono project. So we're not going to charge you for this. Um, but I, I want to bring the board out into the park. So why why did I why did I to to observe and understand the experience of the you know eight million people a year who are coming? Now wh- why did I say that? Well, it it, it actually goes to, to the single most important thing I learned you know in twenty plus years of this work, and it's a really simple thing, but but important, and it's the one thing frankly, we learned that doesn't get enough attention. Like there's a number of things that we learned over the years about websites and mobile and customer experience and stuff that, you know, sort of everyone knows these days and applies more or less, some, some less, some more. But there's this one thing that we learned that I think is the most important thing and doesn't get much um, discussion and it deserves a lot more. And it, it actually, it goes back to the first project that Mark and I did together back in 1999 with Gateway Computer. So do you remember Gateway, Brian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're in Nebraska. So Gateway started in South Dakota, of course. 
shops. They had the, the painted cow boxes, right? And they were, they had started in the 1980s selling computers to hobbyists the same way Dell started selling computers to businesses, i.e. you tell us what you want, we'll configure you can figure it on, you know, on the phone or send in a fax and order and we'll build it and ship it to you, right? We'll give you a good price and give you exactly what you want. Now, by the late 1990s, Gateway, um, you know, was, uh, was not doing as well as they thought they should be doing. And in fact, their price to earnings multiple was much lower than Dell's. And if they had the same P multiple applied to their profits, they would have had $25 billion more in market cap. So they called us and said, hey, you know, come give us a hand. And they sort of intimated that they, that they wanted to be more like Dell. Now, fortunately, the guy who called us, um, we had worked with previously, Mark had done a project at Travelocity creating the first fast fare finder. And um, he then moved over to Gateway. So we had a lot of trust build up with him. And we basically said, well, you know, we may not find that you should be more like Dell. Uh, and he said, I know. Uh, and we said, great, you know, as long as you're good with that. And, and, and then we, we got really lucky. You know, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, a lot of, you hear this a lot in Silicon Valley, people who are successful stand up and sort of claim or intimate that their success is based on <laughs> their incredible smarts every step along the way, <laughs> instead of the fact that they had dumb luck and, you know, at different points. And sure, they're smart, but, you know, boy, there's luck mixes in here and accident. And this was a this was an occasion where where there was a you know dumb luck playing because I, I said to Chuck you know we do this that that's the guy who was running e-commerce at the time Chuck Geiger terrific guy um, council member now and, and just been a been a real um, supporter of of, uh, of our efforts over the years um, he actually started Silicon Valley Product Group with Marty Kagan you know back 15 years ago yeah and. Um, Marty is also a close friend, by the way. I can't say enough. Marty's, Marty uh, continues to, to send us members, and I can't tell you how, how grateful I am. But anyway, I said to Chuck, the thing I got, I said, why don't you come out with us as we spend some time with Gateway customers and see what we can learn? And fortunately, he said yes, and, and, and also brought some other people from the team out with him. That, that ended up, Brian, being the most important thing that we learned. Why? Well, um, Brian, you and your listeners know there's something called confirmation bias, right? Right. The idea of confirmation bias is that um, you see only what you already believe, and you and you unselfconsciously ignore things that contradict your beliefs, right? Now, the original research on confirmation bias was done at Stanford on things like uh, death penalty and abortion rights, you know, very hot topic political questions. But it applies as equally to the ideas that we build up about our businesses, how we go to market, you know, who our customers are, how we're serving them, those kinds of things. We build up sort of strongly held ideas that are hard to knock. Um, and it turns out that what the research shows is that confirmation bias is not only almost impossible to change, it's, it's also impossible in many cases for people to even know it's going on. So, so Daniel Kahneman, who is the co-founder of Behavioral Economics. Brian, have you read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow? Do you know about that book? I don't believe I have. Yeah. Well, it's a long book. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's a bit dense, I'm sorry to say. Most people get five pages in and abandon. Um, it's, if you're willing to persevere, it, um, it's worthwhile. 
But I'll tell you, so he's the co-founder of behavioral economics out of which, you know, sort of all these things, these cognitive biases come out of, including confirmation bias. At the end of his, so he won the Nobel Prize because it changed both economics and psychology. Um, and they basically said, look, people, are, people aren't rational. They don't always know what they're doing. And in fact, they're predictably irrational, which is the name of the book by Dan Ariely, who's one of Daniel right. Kahneman's students. At the end of Kahneman's book, Brian, what he says is despite, you know, you sort of read the whole book and 40 years of research and him winning the Nobel Prize. And he says, you know, essentially he, Daniel Kahneman, has no idea when any of these things are going on. He has no idea. It's like, oh, you're like, and you're reading this, you fall off your damn chair. You're like, oh, my God. Um, You mean to tell me I just spent three months reading this book and (laughs) learning all this stuff and it doesn't matter because I won't be able to apply it? He does, however, say that in the next sentence or paragraph, he says, well, I have noticed that in a social context, um, we can sometimes, it gets exposed. We can learn. It's like, oh, my God, that's what we learned in that first gateway project. So what happened is we, we ran these listening labs. It, it was actually the, the sort of the founding of the listening lab concept. Very simple idea, right? Uh, what you're looking at is behavior, not what people are saying, but what they're doing. So it's not a focus group and it's not a usability test either because you're not tasking people. It's open-ended. And so we brought in gateway customers and would-be customers, people who were shopping for a computer, who were considering gateway and who were doing so online because we were looking at the online channel. And um, let's say you were one of those people, Brian. So maybe you run a small travel agency. It's 1999, poor guy. And uh, you want to buy two or three computers, you know, for your little agency. And so we had you come in and we said, okay, Brian, we understand you're looking for a computer. You'd be like, yeah. And um, you're doing that online. Yeah. And what are you looking at? I'm thinking about a gateway or maybe a compact or Dell or whatever. Okay. Then we say, great. Why don't you... Why don't you do do what you would do if you were at home or at work, and and we're just gonna we're gonna watch and listen. Just put your brain on speakerphone, and we'll get out of the way. Don't worry about us. And now behind the glass, we've got Chuck and some of his team, right? And so um, you you start wandering around. First of all, it's pre Google, so you're on Lycos or Alta Vista, and you're getting lost and <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> but you eventually make it to the Gateway homepage. Now, the Gateway homepage was something of a train wreck. We knew that, and so did Gateway. In fact, Gateway said, let's just build a new site, and then we can put it in front of customers. We said, no, no, we have to, we're not just looking at the problems with this site. We're trying to understand how they're shopping and what their Mm -hmm. unmet needs are, and we can use your site as a context for that. Context is so important here. Um, Yeah, and we'll learn some things about your site, but don't worry, we're, we're looking at the bigger picture. So... First of all, Brian, you're on the homepage, and it's all this stuff about gateway and stupid model numbers, the X10, 7000, whatever. Nothing that really helps you figure out if there's anything for you. And with that team behind the glass, you get frustrated. And without us saying anything, you type in Dell.com into the location bar. <laughs> and you can imagine the, the, the reaction behind the glass. No! You know, they're they're envious of Dell and they're feeling very competitive with Dell and suddenly, oh, no. The good news is, by the way, in 1999, Dell didn't know how to sell to consumers either. They were selling to businesses. <laughs> so you go over to Dell and you get lost. We bring you back to Gateway and we say, let's just assume you got past this homepage and we stick you on a product page and watch you from there. Now, we learned some things about Gateway at that time in 1999 that were important. People didn't, the consumers that were coming to Gateway were increasingly not hobbyists. 
they were small, small business owners or, or, you know, homeowners, whatever consumers that were just looking for the whole thing. They didn't, and they actually didn't want to configure the computer. They didn't know how to, they Mm -hmm. literally, one of the people in the, our lab said, Ram, this is someone who'd been using computer for like 15 years, like going back to the XT Ram. What is that? An animal? You know, I mean, (laughs) that was where people were at, right? They just wanted the damn thing to get on the internet and do some email, maybe play some bridge or whatever they were doing, get on AOL. And, um, it was the thing that we learned though, the meta lesson that changed everything for me was at the end of that second day, Brian, the patterns were so clear, but the team behind the glass, they had changed their minds themselves. They had cut through their own confirmation bias which is remarkable. It's not supposed to be able to happen. And it blew me away. And so I said, every project from here, a rule, senior leaders have to come out with us when we do. And they can't read the report later or even watch the video clip later. They have to sweat it out. They have to be there with us and watch and cringe and cry (laughs) as their customers do things they didn't expect them to do as customers ignore the things that the team internally thought were important and then try to do things that no one even knew were, you know, mattered to that customer. Is that easier um, to do as a startup because you have fewer people and, and typically it's the, the yes. founders? Yeah, it is easy. It, well, it's ironic. It's sort of theoretically easier, but practically almost impossible. I find startups completely unwilling to do this in most cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find what happens, unfortunately, is people have to go through some pain first, right. and then they're like, okay, all right, fine, fine. I'll go spend some time with my customer. <laughs> now, if you are a startup founder who um, maybe has been through this before and seen the power of it, then um, then, then you, you know, so... You know, there are instances where we were able to work with startups early on because the the founders understood this going in. But, you know, startup founders have, you know, can be arrogant, can have a strong point of view, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but the arrogance can build up and blind them and they want to move fast and they're going to change the world and they skip this. Um, And it, it really, it really is a mistake. Um, but I find that my saying that doesn't really matter very much because um, confirmation bias kicks in. If we can force them to get out and spend a day or two observing customers, interacting with products or services that are in the world that they're building something for, it's usually mind-blowing um, and will and will change their minds in, the, in a way that nothing else will. And the key is that they change their minds themselves. Right. They change their minds themselves. It's not some persuasive person. That actually doesn't work. And and data, by the way, in and of itself doesn't change hearts and minds. Data will not cut through confirmation bias. I love data. I'm a big fan of data. I love data science, machine learning. There's a whole bunch of interesting stuff happening there. But when it comes to thinking about leadership and how decisions are being made about product design and development – Data doesn't cut through the stuff. If someone's just committed to a perspective or a point of view and data is presented that, cha- that contradicts that, they won't, they won't go with it in most cases. Um, and so I tell the people who like to be data-driven that if you really want to be data-driven, then you need to get out and spend a little bit of time with customers because it will open your mind to really being uh, able to see what the data is telling you you should be doing. It's a not, You need the combination of the two. Well, that's it for this episode. Special thanks to Phil Terry for joining us this week reach out to him on twitter and let him know how much you enjoyed the interview also if you have a question for us feel free to reach out on twitter as well at the io podcast 
And if you have 30 seconds to spare, we would love for you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And while you're there, feel free to subscribe as well. Until next time, go build something big. <laughs>